up, what up, what up? Ooh, yo, yo, yo. How's it going, gentlemen? Real normal. Real fucking normal? So normal. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's uh, going great. You know, I woke up. I've got um, some nice iced coffee. Um, nice, nice. Some seltzer. Um, there's a march going on right now uh, down the street uh, at a uh, church run by uh, some fascists. This is going to be the bonus. So. Oh, all right. Well, <clears throat> I'm doing great. <laughs> Speaking of churches, no, church, actually, I should say churches run by fascists will be pretty relevant to uh, what oh, we discussed today. Oh, will it ever. Yeah. Um, and what they want uh, Jewish people to do. Or they're, they're fair weather friends. Let's say that. They are fair weather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this yeah. episode is going to be about the uh, special, the, as it is often called, the special relationship between America and Israel. So special. And um, David has been fucking. (laughs) (laughs) David has been on my case to cover this topic since we started this podcast. I basically Um, got on the podcast just to put in these recommendations. I'm going to. This is my last episode. No. I I, I just like got in to keep asking for this. And it only took a year episode. It took a year. But, you know, mission accomplished. So, um, so this, this topic is of interest to me. It stems out of my, uh, my undergraduate thesis work as the anthropology and religious studies major. I looked at, uh, Israeli nationalism and the shift from a secular labor oriented nationalism before the 1967 war to a more religious Zionist form of nationalism after the 67 war. And, um, in that research towards the end, I started to find these really fascinating connections with evangelical Christians in the United States. And of course, as always happens with a big project like a thesis, you find like the most interesting, interesting stuff at the very end and you can't include it and you just cry about it and move on. But there is a, there is an anecdote in my thesis that I am convinced is what David made David fall in love with me. It is. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So and, and so now all of you are now welcomed into our polycule <laughs> where you learn what that that that, uh, that magic phrase. Yeah, yeah. You learn about this anecdote and just from this one story, I'm going to hype this up. You know, like from this one story branches out like this a a literal global conspiracy that goes back thousands of years. Basically, yeah. It is so fucking crazy. It's bizarre. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was trying to decide how to open this, and I think I'm actually just going to read directly from my undergraduate thesis, please, because I reread the whole thing, and it actually holds up. Like my, I was a fairly decent writer. You were at the age of twenty, twenty-one. Yeah, no, you were great. Um, Still are. You want you want to drop a, a link in the show notes? There is no link. It doesn't exist. There is exactly one copy of this thesis, and it is in my hands right no, now. No, there's two copies. There's one. If there's you, one so at you, New okay, College of Florida. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listeners, you have to go to Sarasota, Florida. You go to the Jane Bradford Cook Library. You go into that library. You go into. Actually, I don't think they have a thesis room anymore. But you know, like there will there is a bound cop, hardcover copy of this book, guarded by a panther. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. They actually, there is a digital copy that New College yeah. has, but get this, you can only access the digital copy if you are a current student, faculty, or staff member. Yeah. Wow. So I paid good fucking money for that thesis, and I cannot get access to it. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. 
wild. I mean, you, you have the hard copy in front of you, though. You I do. Just... Yes, I do have the hard copy in front of me. Yeah, take, um, take some cell phone pictures, you know? It's true. I could take pictures of all 115 <laughs> pages of it and post them online. I'm not going to do that. Okay, so this section comes from my... Th this section is in the thesis, and it's titled The Tenth Red Heifer. In 1996, on a hot August day in the Jezreel Valley of northern Israel, a cow was born. This calf was not just any livestock. She was seen as a harbinger of the Messianic era. Melody the heifer was red, from the tip of her nose to the end of her tail, and she threatened to spark a holy war among Jews, Christians, and Muslims. All of this was based on a prophecy, an obscure and brief passage in Numbers 19 that calls for a red heifer, faultless, wherein is not a blemish, and upon which never came a yoke. According to the biblical account, the cow is to be slaughtered and burned until only ash remains. The ash, when mixed with living water from a spring, is the only substance that can purify a man or woman to offer sacrifice at the temple. Mishnah Torah states that only nine such cows have ever been born, all during the time of the ancient temple, and that the tenth will emerge only in the age of the Messiah. At this time, the Jews will build the third temple atop the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Needless to say, the birth of this calf caused quite a stir, not only in Israel, but also around the world. The media buzzed over the calf and its religious and political implications for months before forgetting the incident altogether. An Israeli TV anchor requested that the heifer appear on his show. Rabbi Shmaria Shor, an affiliate of the dairy at which the cow was born, refused. Though he later appeared on national television, and journalists from CNN, ABC, and CBS poured into the small dairy in northern Israel to report on the infamous cow that was agitating religious movements across the globe. The calf was moved from the cowshed to the school's petting zoo to remain safe from the daily visitors. A guard dog was assigned to her protection against intruders. Other groups were interested in the cow. Ultra-Orthodox Jewish groups and members of settler movements flocked to the dairy farm to witness the sign of the Messianic Age. Fundamentalist Christians traveled to Israel to visit Melody. Pentecostals hoped the cow would remain red until its third year, a provision of the biblical commandment, and Melody even made it to the front page of the Pentecostal magazine End Time. Muslims also paid close attention to the cow, but for very different reasons. The cow signaled the Third Temple, the Apocalypse, and the destruction of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Devotees of the three most prominent religions in the world, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, directed their attention to the calf and the Temple Mount. For better or for worse, halfway through her second year of life, Melody sprouted a patch of white hairs at the very tip of her tail. She was not the prophesied red heifer that would bring about the Messianic Age. <laughs> Oh, God. She was, however, impregnated with the semen from a red bull in the hopes that one of her offspring would someday fit the requirements for a kosher red heifer. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's, a, it's a crazy story, right? The yeah. end question so, mark? <laughs> no, actually. So get this. Enter Clyde Lott, who is a U.S. evangelical preacher and cattle rancher from Mississippi who, in the late 1980s, stumbled upon the obscure passage in Numbers 19 that calls for a red heifer. And his thinking was, I got tons of red cows. So he contacted the Temple Institute, which is an organization in Israel. It's a Zionist organization that 
seeks to prepare Jerusalem and the Temple Mount for the Third Temple and actually to conduct the ancient Talmudic priestly rites, rites there. So this is like the end time squad. Yes. And they develop the, they study basically all of this ancient rabbinical text and just, and like figure out what vessels and clothing and all the rites. And they're basically preparing to build this temple. So Clyde Lott gets in touch with the Temple Institute and sets up a program for him to help breed the red heifer by sending frozen bull semen to Israel, where they impregnate cows, heifers that are close enough to the designations that they need. They also, this part's really fucked up. So in the ancient rites for creating this ash and water thing that is the only thing that can purify a priest to give sacrifices at the temple, the water has to be collected by children who are also pure, who have never had contact with any of the like things that can... Um, uh, make make you a not child unpure, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> like, them. Like dead bodies is the big thing. Like if you're if you have any contact with a dead body or a grave or something like that, or um, Jeffrey Epstein, or Jeffrey. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> but so the Temple Institute is keeping these children ritually poor because they're the pure because they're the only ones who can go to the spring, which is the living water that's required to with these little cups. They go and they get water with these little cups. Jesus. Yeah. So and, they, and they, what, they, so these these uh, pure children just like every day just are practicing by grabbing water from this spring. Like, what do I they actually, do all day? I don't know. And you can go to the Temple Mount or the Temple Institute website, and it is a wild ride, folks. Yeah. If you have any interest in checking all that out, you can do it. Chris, is that um, what you have up right now? No, uh, oh, okay. th this just reminded me of another animal agriculture breeding operation that came about through uh, not necessarily prophecy, but like really old stories. And this was when the Nazis were trying to restore the oryx, which were a fabled gigantic like bull that was apparently like tied back to, I don't know, whatever their whatever German they were trying to make great again, you know, like the period <laughs> period of, of that time. And now we have a, a breed of cows called heck cattle, which are um, heck and great. Heck yeah. and great. <laughs> so they're millennial cattle that keep talking about apparently, keep talking in speak. Well, apparently they're like hyper aggressive and gigantic. Cool. And um, oh, this is yeah. great. I, yeah. Let's bring these back. Yeah. So I, I was just uh, reading about an article from 2015. It says, Nazi super cows. <laughs> <laughs> British farmer forced to destroy half of his murderous herd of bioengineered heck cows after they tried to kill staff. They became so aggressive, a UK farmer was forced to turn half of them into sausages. Jesus Christ. Nazi yeah. sausages. So, you know, just saying, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so the red heifers are not uh, murderous Nazi cows. They nice. actually are very cute. And there's a video of um, so in August on August 28th of 2018, another potential red heifer was born under the Temple Institute's red heifer program. Yeah. And there's a video of it on YouTube. It's really cute. I'll yeah. put it in the show notes. Well, um, like because people are are so wild, <laughs> right? Whenever red heifer is born, you got to just be sitting there just because the implications just be like. Blemish, come on, blemish. They have a whole on, blemish, host of rabbis who are constantly checking the cow to see. And like there's in the video, they're holding up a little like um, magnifying glass to her nose and stuff to like make sure that she's all red. So we won't know until 2021 yeah. if she's the red heifer. What's her name? 
I don't know. I can't find her fucking name, Ugh. which really upsets me because like Melody that like Melody, the holy cow was very charming and I can't find this cow's name. But so what's wild is these connections, right, between these Christian evangelicals who see it as part of their duty to send frozen bull semen to <laughs> to Israel for like these Orthodox do. Jews to breed uh, cows in the hope that one of them can be burned. Yeah, and bring about the end of the world. And, but, and, and bring about the end of the world, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, <laughs> Not specifically yeah. the cow, but these kind of strange connections between... A very, actually, a very, very long history of American Protestantism that goes all the way back to the Puritans and kind of culminates in the modern day is relationship between America and Israel. Yeah. So you you heard me say like this is like a thousands of year old conspiracy, and it and obviously the United States isn't a you know a thousand years old. It's not really so, a conspiracy. It's only yeah. recently become a conspiracy, right? Yeah. But, but well, 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 what I'm saying is that like it is a conspiracy in the sense that like there are a preordained set of things that have to be done in order for, or at least not, maybe not done, but have to have happened in order for the, the end times to come about. And so I guess to the extent that it's a conspiracy is really only when like people are like, all right, let's get this show on the road. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and uh, which is actually a fairly recent development. Yeah, and we'll talk yeah. about some of the yeah. factors that came, you know, that played out that caused this shift from, won't it be nice when it happens to we got to take what are we into for? our own hands yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah. yeah and so it all goes back to a few prophecies from is it many from the old testament and a lot of them are actually not n- not necessarily prophecies but covenants so the most famous covenant is the abrahamic covenant which is uh which was what gave us circumcision so thank you for that <clears throat> thank um, you and this uh, this happens in Genesis when God promises to bless Abraham and all who bless him and curse all those who curse him and to offer all his descendants the land from the Nile to the Euphrates, which is the Holy Land. And this territory will become really important after Israel is established as an actual sovereign state. And then next is the Davidic covenant, which promises to establish David's, who's the First king of Israel. What up? <laughs> um, killer of Goliath. Killer of Goliath, yes. Real um, ladies Chad. man. Yeah. Absolute Chad. Yeah. Master of karate and uh, friendship. <laughs> uh, um, so uh, he promises David that his descendants will, will rule as kings in the united monarchy of Israel. And as many of you may or may not know, the Messiah was said to be was prophesied to be descended from David, which is why it's so important that Jesus was descended from David. Um, And that's where you get into some kind of disagreements between Jews and Christians over whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And so then you have like various other prophecies, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. A lot of these prophecies take place during the Babylonian exile, which listeners to our uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories episode will remember we talked about a little bit. And this is where you get the end of the world, the Jews returning to Israel under God's covenant. God restores the kingdom of David and the temple in Jerusalem, which will be very important, and creates a Messiah from David's line to lead all the Jews. And after all this happens, all the nations will recognize the God of Israel and an era of peace and justice forever and always will reign. And then you get to the book of Daniel. 
which is oh daniel oh daniel it's a weird <laughs> damn daniel <laughs> sorry daniel's a really fucking weird book and it's got all these like monsters and beasts and he's like whining and dining with all these like king like nebuchadnezzar and all these fucking kings and shit um this is the book where you get the famous right the writing on the wall metaphor that we still mm. use today that happens in daniel but it's also where you get the prophecy that the temple will, will be rebuilt in the future during the Messianic Age, only to be defiled by, quote, the prince who is to come. This is some Game of Thrones shit now. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we get better writers. <laughs> so all of this is actually where the New Testament book, the final book of the New Testament, Revelation, comes from. It's a mishmash of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and especially Daniel, where you get all of these weird fucking prophecies about like beasts coming out of the water with ten heads and ten crowns. And, yeah, you know, a bunch of like shit. numerology stuff, like the amount of trumpets and the amount of like great waves or earthquakes. And yep, yep. So the revelation of John of Patmos, which was written in the first century AD, there's been a ton of theological criticism and often dislike of revelations, um, but it was really popular with the Puritans, especially because it gave meaning to their struggles and bolstered their belief that they would triumph out of adversity. And this is where it details a lot of the events before and after the second coming of Christ and the apocalypse. So it plays a really foundational role in everything from Puritan I, you know, early like Christian movements in the United States all the way up to fucking Pat Robertson and, you know, modern day televangelists. And so at the time it was written to actually warn, it was written as if the end times were now, they were coming any moment. And it was warning a lot of the churches at the time that they were straying away from the very strict Old Testament laws. So it's kind of ironic that it's, you know, been taken up by all of these Christians who don't abide by any, like almost any of the Old Testament laws. But anyway... <coughs> So I, I see you with your uh, mixed uh, uh, fabric shirts. Yeah, those right. poly blends, folks, yeah. straight to hell. Yeah. Straight to hell. I see you eating animals that have cloven hooves but don't chew their cud. <laughs> your Disgusting. shaved sideburns, no good, friends. You Disgusting. cannot cut that shit. Um, you got to so, hand it to Jehovah real quick, just to go on a quick tangent. Please um, do. So I made up my mind, uh, and then unmade up my mind, uh, several years ago to uh, listen to the Bible on tape, like the King James Version. Yeah. And so I started, you know, with the Old Testament and, and the translated Torah. Um, and God, Jehovah is so particular <laughs> holy shit oh, just yeah. like listening to that like i remember i was doing like an electrical project and i just had to you know in like hand measurements the ark of the covenant and exactly how many like rods and beads and colors and like remnants and like <laughs> all of the stuff that went down into it it was like incredibly detail oriented as well as the majority of leviticus is like a field guide to surviving in a mediterranean desert in a the bronze age in, in with no refrigeration in a pastoral society yeah and so it's all about like how to like make amends when like you know your son accidentally like breaks the ankle of like a local oxen like it's it's real particular <laughs> so there's a funny anecdote so the story the the red heifer comes from uh, even though it's not outlined all the specifics of it, but it comes from when Moses told the people, told his people to sacrifice a cow. And in the Quran, the way the story is told is that Moses went to his people and told them to sacrifice a cow. And the people were like, well, what kind of cow? Like what, 
how old should it be? And he goes, well, not too old and not too young. And they're like, okay, well, what color should it be? And he's like, are you serious? Uh, I don't know, yellow. And they go, because they keep asking these unnecessary, incessant questions, God makes things increasingly complicated for them, basically because he's annoyed with them that they won't just go listen to his order and (laughs) sacrifice the fucking cow. Mm -hmm. So that's how Islam interprets this. Like, And I think that that's, I'm not as familiar with the Quran, so I can't speak to it too much, but I think that that's kind of the criticism of it is like, God made all this shit so complicated because you Israelites were so fucking fussy. Like that sounds right. Yeah, but you you gotta like you know understand why they were that way. Absolutely. Like, yeah. You know they were jumpy because Jehovah was a wrathful and vengeful and jealous God <laughs> that would smite they just you. Just watch this guy kill every firstborn of an yeah. entire nation. Yeah. yeah, that's good. And point. then make them wander around in the desert for yeah. reasons that probably weren't very clear to them at the time look um, if you are in a toxic relationship with your god <laughs> then you know you can leave it's okay you don't have to celebrate his holidays uh, um uh, it makes sense that the perspective in the quran has like this sort of almost like backstage feel to how other uh, religious texts have put these same stories because the only story that i know out of the quran is the one where moses leaves for mount sinai and, and Aaron is in charge, and uh, um, in the Quran, uh, he has to, like, balance these two, te- like, conflicting rules of, like, don't split up the Israelites, but also half the Israelites want to, you know, make a... They're doing bad shit. Yeah, they want they want to worship a golden calf. Yeah. And they're like, we're gonna, we're gonna do it. We're gonna build this golden calf, and we're gonna worship it. Try to stop me. <laughs> and he's like, well, like, I should, but also, like, the other half don't want to do it and i, I can't take divisive. side yeah i don't want to be divisive and so in the quran it's just like like aaron was a bad manager and he's like <laughs> and then when you know moses comes back he's like ah what'd you do and what with the cow what, with the cow oh. Yo, you got these cows oh you got i told you no no the golden half would not that's a one rule i gave you and he's like but also but in the quran it's like yeah but you also have this other rule and it's it's, it's fucking funny yeah yeah so anyway, let's get to Revelation. Um, and yeah. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it because it's a fuck. Like, just I'm not even. Don't trip. even bother reading it. It's so weird. <laughs> Basically, there are these seven seals that will be opened by the risen Christ. There's the four horses. Then number five is these martyred souls that cry out from under the altar, which many believe is supposed to be the Solomon's altar at the temple on Temple Mount. And then there's all these natural natural disasters. 144,000 Hebrews are sealed as servants of God. That's going to be kind of important later seven angels seven trumpets they do all kinds of crazy shit there's a dragon beast the beast do lots of blasphemies fuck everyone's shit up i'm, reading, I'm reading from my notes right now just so yeah. you know yeah there's a partridge of a pear tree there's like <laughs> jesus. seven swans of singing <laughs> uh jesus goes to mount zion with the hundred and forty four thousand. Mount Zion, be important later. The whore of Babylon is destroyed. The beast, the fal- false prophet, are cast into the lake of fire. For some reason, the dragon gets imprisoned in a pit for a thousand years, and then they gotta let him out. I don't really know why. And then he's defeated again and finally cast into the lake of fire. Now we have the new heaven and new Jerusalem that lasts forever and ever and ever, and the curse of sin is ended. Damn. Yeah. That's a lot of work. Damn, it's, homie. It's, it's really like, and there have been all kinds of interpret like that maybe john of patmos was like tripping on acid or like something um it's just such a very very strange book if you've never read it i mean i don't know if i would even tell you to read it read the wikipedia page for it yeah um 
Get so, the Cliff's notes. Yeah. <laughs> so Revelation and these other prophecies set the stage for what is commonly called and what we will generally call it uh, is Christian Zionism. Okay. And so the the major source that I'm using for uh, everything on Christian Zionism is a book called God's Country, Christian Zionism in America. It's by Samuel Goldman. Um, it's published in 2018. It's a great book. I recommend it. Uh, it's on Kindle Unlimited. So if you have Kindle Unlimited like me, you can read it for free. Nice. So Goldman says, and here I'll quote from him, the so-called Holy Land occupies an outsized place in the American imagination. From the Hebraic place names of New England to revolutionary era depictions of George Washington as a modern Joshua uniting the tribes, Americans have played out their history on a mental map derived from the Old Testament. So the origins of Christian Zionism are, come from what's often called premillennial dispensationalism. And this is the idea that... It really rolls off the tongue. It really does. Um, <laughs> this is the idea that history is composed of stages that will ultimately culminate in the return of Jesus Christ to establish his millennium, the thousand-year reign of peace that's described by the book of Revelation. Of course. The gamification of deep history. It's kind of like... Levels um, in a video game. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. It's, it's sort of... It, it's how you, you look at prophecy to figure out the timeline that you're in for when you know, JC's coming back. Yeah. And then you speed run it by sending a bunch of bull semen to Israel. <laughs> to create the red <laughs> so it's like Game Shark, you know, right? You know, all... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, Goldman says that the most distinctive feature of premillennial dispensationalism is the, the sequence of events that it places in the period preceding Christ's return to set up the millennial kingdom. And there, there was like a lot of a lot of this early Christian Zionism and all the movements sort of associated with. There was all of these tensions between um, two major tensions: do we pray or do we act? Like, is it just enough to pray for the return of Jesus in the Messianic age, or do we need to take concrete steps to make it happen? And importantly, where did the Jews fit into that? So all Christians believe, generally speaking, that the Jews will eventually be converted, that they, in, in, the, in the end times, the Jews will accept Christ as the Messiah, they'll be converted, some of them will be saved, most of them will be killed. And so in, that's pretty much the difference between, like, a big difference between premillennialism and postmillennialism is, do the Jews have to be converted before they return to Zion? And... As you'll see, the question of that makes a huge difference in, term to, in terms of your tactics for bringing about the return of Jesus. Do you have to convert all these Jews, or can they just go back to Israel as Jews and then hope that JC is able to do it when he comes back? All right. So you had mentioned that this is mostly an American phenomena, right? That this, that this Christian Zionism, like this, this happened like in the post uh, colonization of America, right? Um, not really. So there okay. is a lot of it in the UK. Okay, I'm not going to talk about it that much because it's its own thing. Yeah. Um, I guess what I'm really interested in is like what set of beliefs, and I guess what Christian sects are you know participating in this debate and like you know fe focusing on this. I remember you had mentioned Pentecostals, but you also uh, talked about the the title of the book uh, God's Country, which made me think about like 
all of the incredibly diverse delineations of Christianity that have happened in America and specifically the Hudson Valley that like created, you know, all of the, the shakers and the uh, Mormons and like the Quakers and like all of these like really like fundamentalist extremist, you know, sects of Christianity that um, for whatever reason found divine inspiration, like in America. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's lots of different sects. It's so beginning with the Puritans, who were obviously the first kind of colonialists in in New England and in much of the, you know, other than kind of Spanish America in much of the New World. And yes, you have the Mormons who believed that the Native Americans were one of the lost tribes of Israel mm-hmm. who believed that like, so that led them to think that maybe the Americas would be the New Jerusalem because you already had all these quote unquote Jews here in the form of um, and the indigenous peoples and pure like the puritanical approach will split off into lots of different sects right okay and you'll have you know you've got your Lutherans and your Pentecostals and then your modern day evangelicals most of what we'll talk about is the modern day evangelicals and I don't really spend a whole lot of time getting into all the different little sects because some of them are I'm mostly interested in those Christians who saw the end times as something to actively bring about. Those are kind of the ones that I'm most interested in because it is so bizarre to me. Yeah. Um, and because that affinity with this tug and this like push and pull between these Christians and these Jews, that's sort of where I'm fascinated by it. A lot of Southern Baptists are Christian Zionists. And then you have like, you know, the more moderate sects, the more kind of reform Christian, you know, like Methodists and, um, some of the chiller Christians are like not about that life. And we'll see a switcheroo that happens in the, in the 60s with that as well. And also maybe with this, the slight exception of Mormons, the, the sects that we're focusing on are also the most powerful, right? Like these are the ones that like are working in geopolitical terms yes, absolutely. to make these things happen. Yeah. Deep, deep connections with yeah. the state and, gov- and governance, yeah. yeah. What about Catholicism? Where does the Vatican uh, weigh in on this? No, thanks. Not at all? Not really, no. The Vatican is not Christian uh, Zionist at all. Well, they, they're pretty powerful. They are. Not, well, yeah, well, that, but not why, in yeah. America as right. much, really. Yeah. Fair enough, um, yeah. You know, that's, they were... Not uh, anymore. And, and and a lot of the work... GFK, out. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, JFK actually did have some good things to say about returning the Jews to the state of Israel. Uh, and, and that's why knows? he had to go. That's, uh, that is actually a theory that some people believe. But we'll, you know, we'll see that a lot of fundamentalist Christians will use this question of the Jewish return to actually differentiate themselves from Catholics in a lot of ways. Huh. And many of them believed that ca- that the Pope was the Antichrist. Oh, so, shit. yeah, once you get wrapped up into... Wh- which one? Like, all, all of them? them? Oh, okay. Whichever so. one was Pope at the time the world the world ended would be yeah. the end. Yeah, they saw, and they saw many of them, not all. With well, a lot they of the did crucify on- Peter, the first Pope, uh, upside down. It's on true. an upside down cross, eh? They yeah, did. They eh? did. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to paper over a lot of distinctions just to make this a more enjoyable listen. But if you do want to get into the nitty gritty, there's a ton of books out there. And God's Country does a good job as well. But many um, of these evangelicals and these Christian Zionists or, or people who just were, you know, uh, dispensationalists believed that this whore of Babylon that was in the book of Revelations and the new Babylon that had to be defeated, they believe that that was the Catholic Church. It was the new Babylon. Oh, shit. That would have to be destroyed by Christ and his holy army. Yeah, I figured the whore of Babylon wouldn't be um, associated with such prudes. Well, later it would become the whore of Babylon for a lot of fundamentalists would become the degenerate America. 
and the cultural changes that took place oh, after the shit. 60s. So, oh, yeah. Shit. Yeah. Fucking bunch of skanks. All of you. I know every <laughs> one of you listening to this is a fucking whore of Babylon. Shout out to all the sex workers. <laughs> you're, you're valid. Your work is work. Your labor is your labor deserves. I'm not. This is not sarcasm. I truly. Yeah, no, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, stand yeah. in solidarity with my sex worker friends. Yeah. Hell yeah. The, I, I, I wonder if Horror of Babylon has already taken on like OnlyFans. Oh, I'm sure. Right, it is. that'd it's be gotta like, be. one of the first. If yeah. it's not, you guys yeah. get on. Get it. on it. Come on. <laughs> so dispensationalists describe the period leading up to the Second Coming as this really grim tribulation. It's characterized by ever increasing disorder, war, pestilence, and everyone who isn't raptured. Most of us are probably aware of what the rapture is, right? When God takes away all the believers. Um, Everyone who isn't raptured suffers through these tribulations. But Jews in Israel are subject to particularly intense anguish. Um, And in some versions of the story, most of the world's Jews perish before Christ returns. So it's a super pessimistic, like we're doomed conception of the end times. So that makes it so strange that like that's one of the things that makes this partnership between Christian Zionists and Israeli Zionists so strange is that like these Christians who are supporting you and like sending you all this money and doing all this tourism in Israel, like they imagine you suffering and dying unless you convert and become them. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, um, helping them like throw you into a wood chipper. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, and just pausing for a second, like the three, um, Abram, Abra, Abrahamic, Abrahamic, the three Abrahamic religions have pretty divergent understandings understandings of what the end times are, right? Like Christians think it's, you know, like you get to party with Jesus eventually, Uh, whereas in Islam, like it's the end of the world, it's the end of the world. And that understandably sucks. You know, right. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, And and, and Jews are also uh, have uh, it's sort of an open question. I well, think, they right? get they they get the holy kingdom that's like yeah. for peace forever. Okay. Um, so, in, in a similar way to the Christian one, but the Christians added a little asterisk that says, "But no Jews, they all die <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or convert." Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, despite this, and this is how uh, the journalist Gershom Gorenberg puts it, he says, "For those who accept the dispensationalist doctrine, as many evangelicals do, it's natural to pro- to proclaim love of the Jewish." Jewish state. Israel's existence gives a believer the warm feeling that the world is behaving as he or she expects it to. Hmm. So there's this strange like love of Israel and you know, oh, I can't wait for them to have like a giant flaming mountain dropped out of the sky on them that kills them all, which is an actual part of Revelation um, of Daniel. Uh, Yeah, so it's very, it's very strange. So we'll get into some Puritan stuff. So um, Increase Mather, who was a relative of Cotton Mather, who's probably the more famous of the um, Christian Zionists. But Increase Mather in the mid-1600s was this Puritan who was absolutely obsessed with the fate of Jews and the beliefs that they were living in the end times. And there were a lot of rumors circulating at the time that Jews were already returning to Jerusalem, which was not really true in the 1600s. But you can see that spark, the beginning of like the belief that the time was coming because the Jews were returning. And that character has to have a really rough upbringing. Increase? Increase. Yeah. Increase. Weird. And so what's stranger is that New England Puritans believed that it was their sacred duty, particularly theirs, to aid the fulfillment of the covenant between Israel and God. But their approach was mostly through prayer. Because really, what else could they do? They were fucking barely surviving. So, you know, praying was like the very best they could offer. 
they were fucking eating each other in winter and shit. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That that is, though, an interesting material analysis to all this, is that if you have a dispensationalist interpretation of religion, then um, eventually you, if your group amasses enough wealth and power, you can start to decide to take control of this narrative. Yep. Right. Whereas instead, whereas otherwise, if you're living hand to mouth in the 1600s, all you can do is pray about it. Just add it to the list of shit you're praying for already. Yeah. Which is just to like keep living. And bread. Yeah. And that's a direct correlation. The more power these groups uh, amass, the more active they become in terms of ushering in the end times. So are you saying that like Puritans, you know, that came over on the fucking Mayflower and shit, that if they were like on a freezing, you know, bitter cold winter where half of them were dying, if, if like they had a blemishless red calf they'd be like oh shit we got to get this to israel (laughs) (laughs) turn around turn around boys (laughs) turn this boat around you know i don't know i mean israel didn't exist right as a a state no it was just palestine it was it was 95 percent arab muslim arabs um, for most of history and well during this time um were people like referring to israel as like a concept or like a physical land like, you know, Both. like, okay. Yeah, because the land of Israel is plays a huge, huge role in the Old Testament. Like, it's just constant. Mm-hmm. God's just constantly going on and on and on about how Israel is his chosen people and his chosen land. And yes, you're gone now, but you'll be back. Don't worry. It's like, it's like a very, it's at the forefront of a lot of Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so part of this belief that they have that it's their duty to fulfill this covenant actually comes from the text of the covenant itself and the Abrahamic uh, covenant, which I talked about earlier, but it's Genesis 12. And he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this covenant is a huge part of why Americans, this fusion of American exceptionalism and Christian Zionism, because by us helping Israel, we we bless Israel and God will bless us. And that becomes a super important theme later on when you get to evangelicals, because they believe that our wealth and our power is literally derived from the fact that we are a friend of Israel. That's what keeps this nation so great. And this goes back to a really fundamental split between protestants and catholics right there's it's not there's a a lot of theology about why that would explain why catholicism doesn't really care about this because under catholicism god's love for you is not really knowable and it's like really just sort of based on a couple of things that you do to keep yourself right with god and you can good works right you good and and tithes yeah and that you can um confess your sins right and and be okay with it whereas in protestants uh god's love for you is reflected in terrestrial sort of uh uh, wealth and like you could tell how much god loves you by how rich you get yeah that's that is a lot for many protestant sects that that is the case and then that is uh really teased out in uh and max weber's protestant uh protestant work ethic protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism yeah yeah yeah. well that goes pretty far to explaining uh televangelists yeah right yes it it, it, yeah. it does i was like the you prosperity can't you give us money yeah. and you'll get money right however yeah. much you give to the church you'll receive tenfold, tenfold yeah. yep absolutely so you guys know the great seal of the united states with the eagle holding the 
olive branch and the wheat and, oh, oh, and uh, it's, yeah it's the olive branch then the arrows and the arrows yeah, 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 yeah. the the, the uh, fashy yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah the fashy in the yeah. background yeah yeah yeah, yeah I, have a, I have a tramp stamp of it yeah yes you do. <laughs> um it turned out very nice i have to say it's it's for a, for, for a 40 dollar tramp stamp it yeah. looks pretty good so the eagle on the great seal, most people think of it as driving from the kind of Roman like ideals of democracy that were really important at the time of the Continental Congress, 1776, you know. It's got a fasci on it. Like it's that, got a fasci yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Very Roman. But here's something that you may not be familiar with. And this is from Exodus 19. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and now I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. (laughs) (laughs) Now... One, two, three, five, the eagle. <laughs> Bring you out of Egypt and into the promised land. <laughs> now, now three hours of white snake. Did you ever see the, uh, the Onion article that's like local eagle pissed off that everyone just keeps con- assuming that it's uh, pro-war? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Okay, now, therefore, if ye obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now... Oh, honey, you're my peculiar treasure. (laughs) Oh, thank you. You're you're my eagle. Um, And so... Goldman describes this as, while some 18th and 19th century writers identified Americans as the Eagles' passengers, right, who have been rescued by the Lord from oppression of Mm -hmm. of their home countries, others argued that the United States was the Eagle, providing safe passage to the still-chosen Jews. The latter interpretation claimed a providential role for America, but supported it to a different understanding of God's purpose. Thus, the prosperity and power that Americans might enjoy were not for their sake alone. They were a sacred trust held for the old Israel. Is this also why at the end of Lord of the Rings, they they jump on the back of a giant eagle and drop the ring in Mordor? No, see, that's the thing is that they should have <laughs> done, done that. They should have right. done that. Yeah, that would have that yeah. would have right. like solved. But there and, is a giant eagle at the end. Oh, and it was the giant eagle shows up a couple times. Yeah. So famously, the time uh, that it shows up is when Gandalf is like locked in one of the towers, right? Like, of the two towers. Yeah. And uh, basically, a little like moth comes over and captures it, and Ian McClellan is like, <laughs> and then l- releases it, and then like. Two days later, an eagle shows up, and he just, like, bails from the tower and, like, lands on its back and then goes off. He's like, thanks, Moth. But, yeah, I mean, you could have saved so many elves and orcs and uh, people. You know, just go right over the mountain. Boop, boop. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah. Can you imagine if we walked the whole way? There was was some, like, old, like, Newgrounds video, like, flash video or something that was that joke, where it's just, like, they fly away, and, like, could you imagine if we walked the whole way? Yeah, one of us could have died. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, you know, this goes back to what I'm always saying, which is that we should have listened more to Ben Franklin. Yeah. You know? Turkey, baby. Turkey. Yeah. yeah. The noble, should have been the turkey. The noble turkey. <laughs> well, so now we, you know, maybe this helps to explain why it wasn't. So, Elias Boudinot 
<laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that right. Who was a member of the Committee of the Continental Congress that commissioned the Great Seal. This seal took like six years to develop, by the, the way, fuck? which is not that good. But, yeah. Um, they, they needed Photoshop Betsy, back in Betsy the day. Betsy Ross got that shit done the first time. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Girl boss. So... Boudinot, Boudinot, whatever his Boudinot. name, who was on this committee, said that the eagle reflected the fact that, quote, America has been greatly favored by God in all her concerns, both civil and religious, and she has much to hope. According as she shall attentively improve her relative situation among the nations of the earth for the glory of God and the protection of his people. Whoa. And by his people, Boudinot did not mean the Americans. He meant the Jews. Boudin, oh, shit. Yes. So this is a... Boudin. <laughs> So this is a direct, this is one of the earliest direct connections we have. Well, because it's the start of the government of the United States. Can't, can't but, really be earlier. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But you can see like right there from the beginning, you have these, you know, theological motivations behind even the most basic symbolism of the United States. It's pretty wild that this guy was like, well, we're the ones that God's going to favor. But, like, we're not his people. Like, his people are the ones that are going to get slaughtered. Like, you know, like, the, the, like we, we still worship the, uh, the Jewish God. But, like, weirdly, we're the ones that are, like, benefiting from it. And, like... We're like, like, a, like a religious vanguard that, like, then later becomes, like, the, like the, cho- the chosen people after God decides that, like, actually, I like Christians more than Jews. No, they always do hold no. that that the covenant, the original covenant that Jews are his chosen people. They are always that always remains pretty across so, the board in Christian Zionism. So then, how do the Christians then get to the party? They accept Jesus as their personal savior, right? Well, that, no, that's Christians though. Oh yeah, Christ- yeah. So, but like, if I, I guess I don't understand then, like, well, if if Jews are the chosen people, why don't the Jews get the party and the Christians get? Well, some of them do. One hundred forty-four thousand of them do. Right. But they got to accept Jesus as their savior. Okay, I get it now. Right. Okay. There you go. All right. Yeah. Why is it? That's such a weird number. Is that just because like gross? Like they're just like some weird like number that has to do with like plants and like, like farming. I don't know. It's, it's like in Revelation. Far- it's just some farming It's kind of like why 666? Yeah. Why, well, it's, you yeah, know. Well, it's all like base three, right? There's like six, 144. <laughs> yeah. Is 12 actually, there 12. is something about that is that it's 12. Yeah. So the 12 tribes of Israel right. and there's like 12 judges. And so that's probably, you know, it's all numerology. Yeah. It's 12 times 12,000, I guess. Right. It's 144,000. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. 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 So numerology. are you guys familiar with the figure of Cyrus? In the Old the Testament, virus. yes, <laughs> I know. Yeah, he, I know he, Cyrus he gets Con Air reference yeah, for he, you. He, he, he uh, unites all the tribes on that plane, and yeah, then they the, take over the... the plane, and they go to the Promised Land, Las Vegas. <laughs> now, is this is this Cyrus the Great from Cyrus the Great? Yes, yeah. not Cyrus the Virus. Cyrus no, the I actually great. don't know about Cyrus in the Bible. I did listen to a hardcore history that covered uh, the rise and fall of uh, Persia and yeah. Cyrus the Great, though. So Cyrus was himself a Messiah. Now, Messiah means the anointed one. So Cyrus the Great was anointed by God to liberate the Israelites from Babylonian exile. Mm. Remember I said the writing on the wall? Yeah. The writing on the wall is basically a, it prophecies that the king of Babylon at the time would be defeated and his kingdom would fall to Persia. And once that happens, it's Cyrus who allows the Jews, who releases them from Babylonian exile and allows them to return to Israel. And this imagery of Cyrus the Great being this Messiah, a lot of Americans will pick that up. Um, and you'll see some very prominent American politicians consider them, compare themselves to Cyrus as well. Hmm. So 
a lot of people saw the U.S. as just basically like a place for Jews to chill while they were being persecuted in Europe and in Russia. Just come over to the United States, chill out until the time is right for you to return to the Holy Land. And in the meantime, we'll teach you about democracy and this kind of civil religion, right? They're, They're wanting to kind of Christianize them in part to prepare them for their ultimate conversion to Christianity through second coming of Jesus. You know, first, you know, you, you, well, you know the, the gateway drug is baseball, play some baseball, and eventually you turn 144,000 Jews into Christians and the end times come. Yeah, exactly. A little bit of apple pie. Well, yeah, yeah. They're going to have to get used to bacon, though, because that shit's American <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they become Christians, then that's no longer, you know, you don't have to worry about the kosher stuff. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Just fish on Fridays. So there's another prophecy that starts to become more important this is now we're into the, like the 1800s the late 1800s and it's the prophecy of the dry bones from ezekiel which is pretty dark because as we know your bones are wet your bones are wet yo but always your bones are real wet right now as you listen to this your brain you you are not your brain is inside your skeleton and you are just operating a a fleshy mech yo get, getting in the case wet. of dry bones that shit sounds painful as <laughs> fuck. <laughs> Oof, ouch, ooey, my bones. Oof, ouch, my bones. <laughs> um, They're so itchy. <laughs> oh. I want to get the moisturizer into my bones. If your bone is dry, it means that you have a compound fracture, and that is not good. You're going to want to get that checked mm. out. So the prophecy of the dry bones is from Ezekiel. Basically, Ezekiel sees this desert valley filled with desiccated bones, and God orders Ezekiel, Ezekiel to order the bones to recover their fr- their flesh, which they do. What? Sounds what? gross. Yeah. So Ezekiel's a necromancer? Uh, I mean, God, it's like with these prophets, all of it is like God tells the prophet to do a thing and then the prophet does it. So it's, you know, it's kind of like a lot of middlemen in the Old Testament. Yeah, fair enough. So then God says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And he promises that he'll restore the Israelites to Israel as he has restored these bones. Now, in 1884, George Bush... And yes, he is related to those bushes, was a professor of Hebrew at New York University. And he published a commentary on the dry bones that it prophesied the final return of Jews to Israel and that it would happen before conversion. Wait, this what? Is, this is George H.W. Bush? Well, it's the George Bush of 1884. So he is an ancestor of the, the oh, George's shit. Bush. Are you it's, fucking serious? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> What's his middle name? I, I don't think he had one. I don't well, know. They hadn't invented middle names yet. How <laughs> I don't are they going to tell their George Bushes apart? <laughs> I have no idea. That's fucking crazy. I, yeah, he was a I professor t- of Hebrew at yeah, NYU. I think typically they, they would just say of and then the, the, the town they're from. Right, yeah, the, the George Bush of, of, the, of the New York Bushes. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that sounds funny. But, I, but what? So... <laughs> I knew this was gonna fuck you guys up. I didn't. This is what I didn't. I wanted to tell you about this, David, but I wanted to get your reaction to it on mic because oh I knew it was gonna God. be funny. Um, I mean, so far, a lot of this is panning out in terms of historical significance. Like, yeah. it, it turns out that this guy who is, you know, like tripping and writing about the end times ends up being the great ancestor of two American presidents. Yeah, that share the same name. Yeah, holy shit. There's another kind of wild thing. I don't even know if I should get into it, but um, do you remember Clyde Lott in the beginning? Yeah. Should he I had t- a wife and turned to a pillar. <laughs> he turned oh. to a pillar salt. <laughs> so this is a total digression, but it's kind of funny, so I'll just share it. Um, 
Clyde Lott actually did an interview on This American Life about his cattle semen business. And I can link, I can link, maybe link to that in the show notes for this. But anyway. It's not much, but it's honest work. He tells this story of when he was negotiating with the Temple Institute and these rabbis for how much it was going to cost for all these cattle. And it was going to be like $2,000 a head or, you know, it was, was going to end up being $20,000 for what they wanted. And they were like, that's a lot of, that's a lot of money. And he goes, well, you know, I'm not trying to rip you off because you're turning to God. And the rabbis get in this whole tizzy and he's like, what just happened? And they're like, well, there's this old parable of a, a Gentile jeweler and a jewel fell off of the off of the crest of a rabbi and um, the jeweler picked it up and they he, they wanted to replace it. And he said, well, I can't because all of my tools are under my father's bed. And they just keep offering and, him and more and more money. He says, yeah, he says it'll be 100 shekels. And but I can't do it now because my father's sleeping and it's under his bed. And they're like, OK, well, we'll give you two 200 shekels. And he's like, no, I can't do it. They get up to a thousand shekels. They offer him. And he says, no, I still can't do it. Eventually, his father wakes up. He goes to get his tools. He repairs the jewel and they try to hand him a thousand shekels. And he's and he gives them back 900. And he says, I'm not trying to take advantage of you because you are turning yourself toward God. And the parable says that that man, the jewel, the Gentile jeweler, will eventually be responsible for bringing about the tenth red heifer. What the fuck? Yeah. So, and it, and it's, like, so it's even the proportions are the same. Yep. Even the proportions are the same. Like, like the numbers. Man, that's some spooky shit. Yeah. Like, so was this guy just like staying up really late, like looking into the Kabbalah and like the Torah and trying to find numerological ways so that he could get a good deal on cattle? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, he had never heard of it before. What? Like the rabbis just told him this story and he was like, he was, uh, to he was totally blown away by it. I, I like the idea of Lot saying like, you're turning to God and then like all the rabbis immediately huddle up and like they start like. Like researching, <laughs> like, like, yep, no, it definitely says it. <laughs> All right, and then they, you know, come back out. So this whole George Bush anecdote reminds me of another anecdote with George W. Bush during the lead up to the Iraq War, and the reason why we called French fries freedom fries for a while. He allegedly got on the phone with the president of France and was explaining that the reason that they needed to invade Iraq was of like biblical end time prophecy and that like it was gog and magog Ooh, and like we're gonna get to gog and magog and like i you know awesome because i want to know what the hell but i remember uh the french president like got off the phone was like i am dealing with a, a fucking, fucking fanatic <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like this person yeah. thinks they're bringing about like yeah. the christian end times through the invasion of iraq which like who people knows? Said, Maybe he was. People Maybe have he speculated is. that that was the cause of the first Gulf War. I mean, there's all kinds of speculation and sort of like trafficking and conspiracy theories that, you know, walk the walk the line between getting into like Zionist world government, anti-Semitic territory but yeah it's yeah, hard fair. because or like some military industrial contractor looking over the torah late at night and being like oh shit i know exactly <laughs> how we can just make trillions and trillions of dollars by killing innocent people <laughs> yeah there, there yeah. was like yeah some northrop grubman uh, ceo who's like really disappointed that his daughter like decided to be a religious studies scholar and then she comes home on you know on winter break one day and starts talking about it so, yes, George Bush's, the Hebrew professor, George Bush, um, he interpreted the prophecy of the dry bones as meaning that it was the duty of American Christians to use the state 
to remove barriers to the return of Jews to Palestine. Fuck. So now you're starting to see this increasingly active Christian Zionist goal that, you know, in the beginning it's, well, we should pray for the return. And then it's, well, we should let the Jews come here until they're able to return. And now we're getting to, let's use the mechanisms of the state to facilitate the return of the Jews. And so let's pause right there. You mentioned it briefly. We've done an entire episode about anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. This is not that, right? Like sometimes, no. like Th- there's it, definitely like some uh, some interwoven elements of anti-Semitism in here. But. People point people say, point to like some of these things when they're making their anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Yeah. But we are staying far away from that, and we don't fucking believe any of that. These are, and as I've said often, conspiracy theories are compelling because they're built on little seeds of truth. And you take that little, you find that one true thing, and then you blow it way out of proportion to be this big, evil, often Jew-run conspiracy. Right. And these are some of the grains of truth, like the fact that, you know, many people closely, you know, entwined with or actually members of the government wanted to bring about the state of Israel. Well, then that becomes that there's this big worldwide Jew conspiracy. Right. Um, and, And there are these, like secret societies that a lot of these motherfuckers that you're talking about almost certainly uh, w- were parts of sure. you know and so i wonder if like skull and bones have has anything to do with dry bones i don't know that's mm, a good question yeah. i don't actually know i don't know a whole lot about secret societies i would like to though yeah and so we and just the last thing i'll say about this right is that like like we said at the beginning the real anti-semitism is this thing right where like they're all like christian Zionists are trying to feed Jews into a, 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 a an end times wood chipper. Yeah, it's right. super anti-Semitic. Yeah, so l- l- and a just lot keeping, of like keeping track of like what is actually anti-Semitic in this is not acknowledging that like there's people named George Bush for 150 years that <laughs> like trying to bring us to the end times. That's yeah, not no, the anti-Semitic. No, no, part. The no, anti-Semitic no, part is them trying yeah. to feed Jews into a wood chipper. No, yeah. it, it might it might be like anti-wasp, but like yeah. that's okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in fact, a lot of so you know most modern. Jews, the majority of modern American reju- Jews are reform yeah. and they do not support Zionism. Right. They do not support the state of Israel. And in fact, we just watched um, All four the, parts lobby, of the Lobby, yeah. which they discussed in a, a episode of True and On yeah. a while back. And you can find it on YouTube if you go to Electronic Intifada's YouTube account. They have all four episodes of the U.S. Lobby. You want specifically the U.S. one, if you want to learn about the U.S. There's also a U.K. one. And they very, very briefly, I think in the third episode, touch on everything that we're outlining. Like two right? minutes. Yeah, um, yeah. And we'll get to some of the stuff they yeah. talk about later in this episode. But And you see, like modern american reformed jews explicitly saying like yo this evangelical shit is anti-semitic this is it's not anti-israel sentiment that's anti-semitic it's these fucking televangelists who want to throw us into a wood chipper so let's talk a little bit about the condition of palestine right because this is one of the you know biggest objections that all of us in this room probably most of you listening this is one of our reasons that we don't support the current behavior of Israel. All of these travelogues of the time were describing Palestine as barren and empty, which they can, they interpreted as proof that God was preserving the land for his people. 
And um, here I'll quote uh, Goldman again. The idea that Palestine was a ravaged wilderness played an important role in, in the development of Christian Zionism. If the land was not populated or properly used, it was thought to be because God was preserving it for its rightful occupants. In addition to justifying Jewish return, providential emptiness linked the future of Israel to European settlement projects elsewhere in the world. And especially, that sounds very familiar to anybody who knows anything about the genocide of indigenous peoples of America. It's yeah. barren. It's empty. There's nobody there. They're not even using it. And what? it's because what their use looks like is not anything similar to a Western conception of the use of land. Also, smallpox, which, also small like, <laughs> which killed like something like 95% of the indigenous population of the uh, Americas before the time of the pilgrims. So, at what point are they saying that Palestine is open land for for colonization? I mean, this is pretty pretty much from, like, the late 1700s all the way up to the creation of the State of Israel. Right, okay. And it's important to... So, the, the, the line was, and this was said often by many people, it, how, how providential is it that you have a land without a people and a people without a land? Right. Now, it's important to remember or to, to uh, acknowledge the fact that in 1900, there were 600,000 mostly Arab Palestinians. So it was not a land without a people. It had lots of people. But part of the argument, especially on the part of these Christian Zionists, was that it wasn't really unjust to, to settle this land because Arabs had no particular ties to Palestine the way the Jews do, and that they could just re repatriate to other places in the Arab world, and that would be fine. Yeah, yeah, just Wait, go live somewhere else. When did Muhammad show up? <laughs> uh, like 600, I think. So were these Arabs Muslims? 90, something like 95% of them were, so, were Muslims. So did they just n not know anything about Islam? Like, wh what would make them think that the, uh, the Arab uh, Muslim population of Palestine would be like, oh yeah, this whole thing, yeah, I'm just going to move right on. It, Jerusalem is home to the third holiest spot in Islam. Yeah. The Al-Aqsa Mosque. Yeah. It's so, the place where Muhammad ascended to heaven. So what the fuck are these guys smoking? They're... They're smoking that what? Christian Zionism, baby. Puff, puff, pass. <laughs> Holy shit. So, one of the figures at this time who is really influential is William Eugene Blackstone, who was born in upstate New York, what up, in 1841. And he described himself as God's errand boy. Cool. Like, way to fucking <laughs> cuck yourself, dude. Jesus yeah. Christ. That's a good Twitter handle. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so he was an evangelical, and he was one of the first to really effectively fuse this dispensationalism with American exceptionalism. And he published this tract that was called Jesus is Coming, which at the time was a bestseller. And it also placed... a good porno. <laughs> <laughs> it's pronounced Jesus in that one, I think. <laughs> and so Jesus is Coming. <laughs> Uh, placed. <laughs> God damn it! Sorry, just to go way off the rails. I I I, I heard you. Uh, uh, you're having an Easter celebration. All right, Blackstone <laughs> placed. Your I have risen. <laughs> <laughs> 
We're all going straight to hell. <laughs> Very bottom. Um, Blackstone placed the condition of the Jews at the center of dispensationalism. It was basically a marker we could use to know where we were in the end times by observing the status of the Jews. And he, as I just briefly mentioned earlier, Blackstone got a ton of pushback from American Reform Jews who were not interested in, in pursuing what now at the time could be called restoration, Jewish mm. restoration. Also probably didn't want to be the canaries in the coal mine. Sure, probably also that. And they were also opposed to displacing the Palestinian population. Even back then, people knew that it was bullshit, that there were no, that there, nobody was living there. Like, These, of course they were living there. Yeah. People knew that the Temple Mount was the home of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Like, yeah, but these prairie Indians, they gotta fucking go. <laughs> So this is a quote from the Goldman book. Uh, to dispensationalists like Blackstone, Jewish return to the land of Israel was immensely important, but not the end of the story. Once in Palestine, they expected the Jews to suffer a terrible tribulation before finally accepting Christ. So get all the Jews out of here. No, I'm not anti-Semitic. Just get all the Jews out of here <laughs> and put them in a place where something terrible will happen to them. I'm not anti-Semitic. I am a friend of Israel. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> just get all the Jews. I mean, like, this is exactly what I'm, I'm, I'm just God's errand boy. Yeah, this is exactly what white supremacists say about black people, right? It was like they should have a nation of their own. White right? nationalists. Yeah, say that, white yes. nationalists say that. Yeah, yeah, it should be specific. Right? Yeah. 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 Is that like they, yeah, like they, they're saying like go to Liberia or something, like go yeah. have a, oh, a black state somewhere else. Oh, they're not talking about like yeah. repatriation of huge amounts of land no. in America. No, no oh, they're okay. not. Fuck them then. Yeah. Well, and it comes from prophecies very specifically. I don't remember which book it is, but it says very specifically the Jews will leave the West and right. return to Israel. And yeah. so that's a big part of it, too, right? That they're supposed to leave Europe and the Americas and go back to Israel. So this brings us to the Balfour Declaration in 1917. This is when the British government issues a public statement supporting a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. And so this moment was seen as divine providence among both Jews and Christians. And then later, in a few years after this, you'll get the Palestinian Mandate, which many said was like the kind of beginning of the end in terms of Israeli-Palestinian relations ever being normalized or peaceful well, let's also the, say 1917 so we've also had world war one yes right? we've had so, world war one so there are the, all these european powers that are unifying trying to decide what is a you know like a national people right and that's also when you start getting like ah you know these jews are not quite you know german or english yep. right and you also have the ottoman empire the dying man of europe yeah. as it was called is just not doing great like right. it's you know the ottoman empire has been in decline for a few decades at this point it's going to get much much worse by the beginning of world war Two, or maybe it's actually when did the ottoman empire end was it the world, world war one world war one yeah you're right empire, yeah you're which right. is when they, start, That's when they started divided. dividing it all yeah, up right yeah. so it divides into turkey and, and that dividing and up Iran, of the middle east Iraq, provided yeah. the model for creating israeli statehood right and but it you, was believed that you could reduce tensions if you just drew the lines right yeah and that's just worked so well in so many parts of the world, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Ethics. Put a bunch of big squares all over Africa and the Middle East, and I'm sure everyone will get along perfectly. Ethics, like art, is about where you draw the line. Mm, very nice. <laughs> very nice. And I guess statehood, too. Yeah. Can I just say that this is all so spooky? Yeah. Like, I, I feel so on edge, like, thinking about... That's going to get spookier for like, now. Like people <laughs> like dealing with things like prophecy and like <laughs> divinely inspired supernatural feats of genocide. Like this is like some 
some fucked up shit. <laughs> Dry yeah, bones. Yeah. yeah. Dry bones, gross. Yeah. Necromancy. Um, so you have the, the Balfour bushes. Declaration, you have the Palestinian Mandate, and then the Nazis show up and just Yo. speed up all of this. They they like massively increase the pressure that American Christians feel in ushering in the restoration. And, and the Nazis also at the same time are also like, you know, uh, um, uh, Indiana Jones is a documentary, right? Like they are looking for... Like all of these, there's so much weird Christian Nazi yeah, shit. Like yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't even know how to. And then you got Madame Blavatsky, and you got all these weird occultists, and like the Nazis were crazy fucking conspiracy theorists. And yeah, they're yeah. looking for the Holy the, Grail, the, and the, the Ark, Ark of the Covenant, Covenant and yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, real Art Bell hours. Yeah, yeah. So before the 1940s, the Zionist movement in America, and particularly Jews, were not necessarily associated with the pursuit of a Jewish state proper. A lot of them were perfectly happy for there to just be a Jewish community in Israel, some kind of homeland that didn't have to necessarily be like a commonwealth, you know, like a republic or anything like that. But after, you know, Nazis start all their genocide and shit, and then you get the Biltmore Conference in 1942, which is, I believe, the famous one where they served shrimp. Um, Oops. But that <laughs> marks this massive change in Zionist thinking that goes from just wanting a simple homeland to the establishment of a specifically Jewish commonwealth. And you start ratcheting Jewish immigration way up. And, and it should be said, I, I don't know if, if you have this uh, coming up, but um, you know, the, uh, candidates for uh, a modern Israel are not in Palestine, right? Like there, like they, there was talks about like putting making a modern day Israel in South America. That was back in the eighteen eighties oh, and nineties. Oh, okay. At the so we talked about uh, Theodore Herzl and the first Zionist conference. Yeah, and that was pretty much where there was consensus that it should be in Israel. But prior to that, yeah, they were talking about Argentina. They were talking about places in America, all kinds of places that could be designated like a safe place for Jews to, to go because that's when you have like the pro the pogroms and, you know, um, yeah, that's when my family came to the when, United States was yeah. like, yeah, during those, like those pogroms out in uh, Eastern Europe. Yeah. Yeah. As well as a lot of these uh, areas were under colonial occupation by states that could just say, yeah, sure. Yeah. Like, take it. Yeah. yeah. But but it, by the 40s, when, you know, Jews are being genocided, that's when it becomes solidified for a lot of Zionists, but also just general commentators on the situation that, like, Israel needed a state because it would need to defend itself. And it would need to defend itself in perpetuity, right? Because they have just, the Jews have just been constantly persecuted all throughout history. Yeah. And the, the idea that, like, any state that could just protect them, they like fuck that. It's way too yeah, hard. Yeah, well, they, and they turn on you. I mean, shit. The Jews? No, the states. That <laughs> <laughs> I, I just gave you no, such a weird look. I was you like, really <laughs> did, and I was like, "What?" Like, there, plenty of governments have promised to protect the Jews and then turned on them. Yeah, right? Yeah. sorry that that came off that way so but the jewish state wasn't just to protect the jews from persecution it was also and this was said by a lot of christian commentators at the time to atone for the persecution of the jews it was kind of like a my bad here have a have a have a country and so when the state of israel finally was proclaimed by david ben gurion who was the head of the the jewish agency in 1948 a christian radio station in Los, los angeles pronounced it as the most significant event since Jesus Christ was born. Oh, shit. Yeah. So Christians were all about this shit. And Harry Truman, 
who was actually a fierce advocate for Jewish restoration, recognized the state of Israel the same day it was cr- proclaimed, like two hours later. He was like, yep, let's pro- let's let's recognize it as a state. And in 1952, Truman was introduced to the Jewish Theological Seminary as the man who helped create the state of Israel. And the former president objected, what do you mean helped create? I am Cyrus. To, I imagine, thunderous laughs and applause. Wow. So again, saying like he is literally the liberator of the Israelites. Harry said this? Yeah, Harry Truman said this. Damn, homie. (laughs) And uh, so the way Goldman puts it is modifying America's Protestant-inspired civil religion in a way that made Jews full participants, Truman specifically opened the way for a special relationship between the United States and the Jewish state. Religious intellectuals had already coined a term for this vision, Judeo-Christian civilization. So that's where the the term comes from. from. Yeah. Fucking Truman. And get ready for some exciting things in the next section. But yeah, that's like Truman and a lot of his, you know, the, the, almost called it a cabal people who were involved in cabinet (laughs) uh you know the 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 cabal cabinet think about it so now that we brought up truman one thing that's worth uh thinking about is that you know how truman became president right for all of fdr's um four uh terms in office go right? the yeah the first the first three his um uh vice president was henry wallace who was making all these very direct overtures to the soviet union and talking about like a one world order with the soviet union the united states and this uh common belief in like science and progress and he even makes this um this speech that's uh, very popular called the common man speech towards the very end of his last term in office. And he's very, very, very popular. Wallace is expected to become president, not only because FDR is obviously ill, but also because he's like, so he's, you'd make a great president. People, people really like him. Uh, and then uh, in the democratic convention to nominate FDR for his fourth term in office, suddenly there's this, all this backroom dealing and Wallace is dropped from the ticket. And Truman, who is a fail son in every respect, he's like just like this like failed like insurance salesman, I think, or something. And then he gets put up as senator and he, he ends up being senator. And then he just like fails up to the presidency and he becomes president. Why was he? Why did he no, replace Wallace on the ticket? Because is- he was too left. Like, they, was yeah, 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 a lot of people in the Too Democratic, pink. yeah, a lot of yeah. people in the Democratic Party were very, very concerned about his, about how connected, how sympathetic he was to, to the, the Soviets, so- Soviet yeah. Union. And so who you get is the, is Truman, who is like very, very conservative by, uh, yeah, reactionary, yeah, reactionary, yeah. um, by degrees. So, and as soon as he becomes president, like a couple days later, he drops two bombs on Japan, the two nuclear bombs on Japan. He didn't even know that the nuclear program existed uh, like 48 hours before he decided to use it. Yeah. And I find it a little strange that like, I mean, maybe in your research, you, you found some type of prophetic element that related to the nuclear bombs. But when you're talking about that Christian radio uh, host that said that the creation of Israel um, was the most significant development since the birth of Jesus. Um, I think that coming up with technology that can destroy entire cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, like on a biblical level, yeah. is like pretty significant. Yeah, yeah. Um, a machine that is basically a a, fl- a flaming mountain. 
little flaming mountain that you can descend from the sky onto a city. There yeah, is a, you know. so we talked about that off mic, but there is a passage of Revelation that talks about a fly a mountain coming out of the sky that's on fire and it explodes a bunch of stuff. And there were people at the time who made comparisons between nuclear weapons and the kind of cataclysm of Revelation. And and definitely the nuclear weapons and, and the Cold War in general ratcheted up this feeling for a lot of Christians that we were living in the end times because mm. everything is so you're living under the constant fear that nukes are just going to come out of the sky and destroy everyone and everything that you love. Yeah, w- while Robert Oppenheimer uh, was a fan of the uh, Upanishads or the um, the Hindu uh, stories of end times when he uh, said, uh, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Yeah. So the Cold War provides a really interesting new framework for understanding Israel. Um, Israel came came to be seen as this bulwark of Judeo-Christian civilization, which was a relatively new concept at the time. And um, it was a concept developed to actually unite Americans, Protestant, Jewish, and Catholic. And for the first time, we start to see Catholics kind of brought into the fold in a major way. Finally. Against, <laughs> against the threat of communism, very specifically. Mm. Um, by the mid-1960s, the U.S. was the most important supplier of arms. It had displaced France and Germany as now the, the major supplier. And there is like a real politic basis for this development that it's important not to neglect. You know, the sale of American tanks and airplanes was essentially a quid pro quo for restrictions on Israel's nuclear program. Um, And it was also an attempt to balance the Soviet aid that was going to Egypt, Syria and Iraq. But of course, aside from it being a, a kind of more political motive, it was also consistent with Christian Zionist discourse. So that's why we talk about it here. Um, now, while we're talking about uh, nuclearization in Israel, like it's sort of an open secret nowadays that uh, Israel has a nuclear uh, arsenal. Uh, and I don't know if you're, you're planning on getting to that, but like that's got to factor into this whole like millennial um, uh, discussion, right? It certainly exacerbates tensions in the Middle East with Israel's neighbors that it is an open secret that they have a nuclear program. Um, it's not something that came up much in my research uh, and so I, I don't really have a whole lot to say about it, but it's certainly concerning. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. So this is a sort of interesting bit that I'll again quote from uh, God's Country. And he writes, the realignment in the Middle East was consistent with the theologized reading of the Cold War that many conservative Christians favored. If the United States was obeying God's will by supporting Israel, the Soviet Union then must be working for Satan by supporting the Arabs. Indeed, this evil parallel to the increasingly special relationship between the United States and Israel seemed to be written directly in scripture. It goes back to Ezekiel. After foretelling the return of the exiles, Ezekiel prophecies an invasion of the promised land. At its head is a certain Gog who leads many nations against the restored Israel. So this is Gog and Magog in in Revelations, which is... like a really like overly complicated, but but just know the important thing about Gog and Magog is that uh, Gog is of Rosh, as it's put in Revelation, and right wing evangelical Christians interpreted Rosh as Russia. There are a few different interpretations of Rosh and what it might mean linguistically, but the way that you know these conservative Christians used it was Gog is Russia and evil and satan and arabs are evil satan soviet aligned 
Is Magog China? I don't know what Magog is. That's again, Revelation is so complicated. Yeah. I didn't really spend a lot of time, like, kind of trying to. I'm an Old Testament broad, but um, <laughs> I have the tiniest, adorable little spider hanging off my my pop. Oh my light. god, my pop filter. Hell yeah! Your um bathroom spider polycule is back for the summer. I I see. Oh it's hell Very yeah. nice to see them all in there taking care of shit. I mean, hell, they do all the heavy lifting in this place. (laughs) (laughs) So, this brings us to the Six-Day War, which is arguably the most important turning point in this whole story for Israeli Zionists, for Christian Zionists, for everybody. So, this excitement about the state of Israel had been building among conservative Protestants since the creation of the state. But as Goldman puts it, it took the shock of Israel's victory in the Six Day War to ignite the combination of the dispensationalist eschatology and American patriotism. So, uh, before the Six Day War, can we paint a little bit of a picture of what Israel was as like, or like understood as a as a nation? Like, it's fairly secular. Right. Or and uh, and there's like these very communistic kibbutz uh, movements out Mm -hmm. in the country that are like, you know, like now they make guns. But at the time they made like like porridge and they were utopian. Yeah. Right. Well, they did make guns, too. There was still a militant streak. So um, Zionism at this time was primarily focused on it was very much a cultural Zionism and it was focused on um, military valor, labor. And especially the revitalization and reconfiguring of Hebrew as a language. Yeah. So prior to the creation of the state of Israel, Hebrew was only spoken in like ancient Hebrew in recitations of um, like rabbis. The Torah. The Torah. Yeah. 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 And you had like Yiddish, which is a combination of like German and like a couple of like very old sounds, yeah. essentially. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it is like a bunch of different stuff mush together to make yiddish whereas modern hebrew is a a a deliberately designed language exactly it was designed by these cultural zionists these uh sort of like generally secular labor-oriented jews and at the time the state of israel was and I, i encourage people if you're interested to check out a map of israel before and after the 67 war because prior to that israel was sort of a somewhat narrow strip of what is now considered israel and now when you say 67 war and six day war these are the those same are things. the same thing yeah the six day war took took place it was six days in 1967 okay. very straightforward yeah um so here's basically the long and short of the war uh, uh, also base three <laughs> oh very nice yeah very nice also one third of 666. Ah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so the war was basically Israel versus Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. And what happened was is- Egypt closed off the Straits of Tehran to Israeli trade. This had happened a couple of times in the past, and it led to some other confrontations. Um, and Israel had made it clear to Egypt that if they closed off these straits to Israeli trade, it would be an- they would consider it an act of war. Egypt does it. Israel launches these airstrikes that destroyed most of the Egyptian air force, caught them totally flat-footed. Then they launched a ground invasion of Gaza and Sinai. And Israel absolutely mopped the floor with its opponents, which shocked everyone. Who was in Gaza at the time? That was Jordan. Um, So one of the strange, or was it Syria? So 
Um, Israel in this war seized Sinai, which it later returned in 1989, Gaza, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, which was actually Syria's, and East Jerusalem. All of those were Jordan's. And at the time, it was a bit of a wonder that they had attacked and seized land that was, you know, owned by Jordan and Syria when it seemed like their major beef was with Egypt. And and this is also in the middle of the Cold War. Yeah. And you have a, a U.S.-backed Israel and then all of these USSR-backed Arab countries. Yeah, exactly. So this is very, very concerning as like, you know, the Cold War could become hot. Which yeah. is to say, end life on Earth. Yes. Yes. But so the, the seizures from Jordan and Syria seem to suggest to a lot of observers that it was not as much about using the Straits of Tehran for trade as it was restoring the ancient boundaries of the monarchy of Israel in the olden and ancient Israel. Which they didn't know, right? Like, that isn't written in the Torah. Like, what? Yes, it what, is. Oh, it is? Like, oh, la- yeah. latitudes and no, longitudes? It's very, well, not latitudes and longitudes, but it's very well known, the shape of ancient Israel. The oh, geography okay. of ancient Israel is very, is not really up for question. It, great, great swaths of the Old Testament are believed to be very realistic, uh, just All like right. documentation right. of the past. I stand corrected. Um, other than, like, the prophecy <laughs> shed, but, like... And God promises his his chosen people all the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. Now, if you want to know why that's a problematic promise for the Arab states, I encourage you again <laughs> to check out a map and yeah. look at all the land between the Nile and the Euphrates. That's a problem. So, <laughs> so I- Israel is now well on its way to occupying, you know, the 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 full landscape of the the holy land the promised land and in any of this like uh you used a word a second ago it was like zionist eschaton or eschatology eschatology mm-hmm. that's a cool word it is um and so did any of uh this millennial eschatology have to do with like restoring the control of the ancient israel in its entirety absolutely like, yes it's also, also what is eschatology eschatology is uh end times okay. belief end times yeah. for pretty much any religion it's uh, okay. theological study of the end times so the only reason i even like sort of recognize the word eschatology is that i've watched a lot of like youtube lectures from terence mckenna who's like this fucking really tripped out dude like he just did a lot of drugs like a lot of like psychedelics and um and mushrooms and you know basically tried to explain what he thought was going on and he was talking about how humanity is moving toward the eschaton and that this has everything to do with technology but it also has to do with our ability to like become aware of like what really is Mm. and um i don't know nearly enough to give it credit by describing it any further but uh yeah the word eschaton is uh essentially means like the end times like Uh, okay yeah like the, the 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 culmination. It's like uh, you could think about it in terms of people like Elon Musk believe that the singularity is yeah. the eschaton. The eschaton right. That like okay. we're going to get to some point where we break through a technological barrier, whether it be AI or like you know being able to pop in and out of various dimensions that will just suddenly render like a new BC kind of thing, where like everything beyond this point is like a new world. Because and there we are have- cults that crop up. On from time to time that do mix that kind of technological progress, uh, com- like computerization of everything with 
biblical prophecy to suggest that like, yeah, we'll meet the singularity and that will be Jesus's thousand year reign of like peace and the dissolution of the curse of sin. Like, what, what, what if the car drove you? <laughs> what, 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 what if you what if your father was a computer chip what, what if your messiah was a was a usb cable <laughs> what, that to this day is one of my favorite chopo bits yeah. that they ever yeah. fucking did yeah. what if your mom was a mobile <laughs> <laughs> what if your mom was a mobile oh, good shit God. well i guess folks are out here having fun with it yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, like... So, yes, you asked earlier, was the seizure of these lands important for prophecy? And yes, it absolutely was. Returning to the ancient boundaries, uh, to, returning to the boundaries of ancient Israel was very important for, for specifically Israeli Zionists, Shit. Israeli like religious Zionists, um, but also Egypt. Christian science. But it's not even just the boundaries. What was really important was that Israel was able to capture the old city of Jerusalem. So, prior to that, Gaza had included territory of what's called the old city or the city of David for Jews. They call it the city of David or just like the old city of Jerusalem, East, Eastern Jerusalem, Eastern Jerusalem. But Israel's capture of the old city was absolutely a turning point for all of this, because now the Jews had theoretically control of the Temple Mount, which is the location of the fabled third temple that will be rebuilt in the Messianic era. Which hasn't fact, started to be built yet. Just, just it has not. Good, good. This was what this was actually what my undergrad thesis was on was on the Temple Mount and specifically archaeology and uh, rabbinic texts relating to it. But in fact, uh, Shlomo Gorin, who was the head rabbi of the Israeli Defense Forces at awesome the time, name. great name, um, at the time, had to be talked out of a plan to inaugurate the Messianic Age by blowing up the mosques on the Temple Mount. Whoa! Yeah, with uh, like hornets. Hornets? Like F-18 Hornets? Like the... Uh, probably. I don't know. Like, just Shit. wanted to blow it up so that they could... Probably by any means necessary. Pro yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. Fuck. Um, Flaming mountains. But they... But only the mosques. They didn't want to blow up right. the whole yeah. Temple Mount because that's Solomon's so, Temple. That's you gotta got build the third temple. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So after 1967, but prior to that, you did have a lot of liberal Christians who supported Zionism for the purposes of, again, protecting the Israeli people, the Jewish people, giving them a homeland. But after 1967, you had a shift from for these liberal Christian groups who are no longer really see it as a humanitarian effort to protect the Jews. It becomes more to them like an imperialist colonial injustice against the Palestinian people. And, and before colony became and colonial became a bad word israel constantly called itself a colony yeah and and colonization and very deliberately and blatantly described themselves in colonial terms mm -hmm. i do want to point out that the word colony has always been a bad word for the colonized yes right yeah, <laughs> sure. for real yeah but the loss of these liberal christians was really no big deal because fundamentalist evangelicals were ripping ready to take their place in terms of supporting the state of Israel. And in fact, at, after this point, you see strong support of, of Israel from conservative American Protestants. 
And Goldman says, if God blessed those who blessed the Jews and cursed those who cursed them, there was a fear that he might deny participation in the rapture to Christians who didn't fully support the Jewish state. Jeez. This reminds me of the fucking, uh, what was the, the paradox that we talked about on a previous episode where it was like, once you know about the AI God that is to come. Yeah, don't tell me about the AI God. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like all the Christian missionaries going to, there's like a famous, you know, parable of these Christian missionaries somewhere in Africa and the person they're trying to convert says, so you're telling me if I'd never heard of Jesus, I wouldn't go to hell? And he goes, well, yeah. And he's like, so why the fuck are you telling me about Jesus? Fuck you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a paraphrase, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, in fact, in a statement published in the New York Times on July 12, 1967, 16 theologians, both Christian and Jewish, argued that, quote, Jerusalem should remain unified. They gave an explicitly theological defense of Israel, saying, quote, Judaism has at its center an indissoluble bond between the people of Israel and the land of Israel. For Christians, to acknowledge the necessity of Judaism is to acknowledge that Judaism presupposes inextricable ties with the land of Israel and the city of David, without which Judaism cannot be truly itself. Theologically, it is this dimension to the religion of Judaism which leads us to support the reunification of the city of Jerusalem. Well, there you go. They proved it theologically. Yeah. Yeah, QED. exactly. Yeah, failing New York Times. And so, yeah, I mentioned earlier how Israeli Zionism and nationalism in the first few decades was mostly secular, focused on military valor, land cultivation, and the everyday use of modern Hebrew. We call this often labor Zionism. And the nationalism of that era highlighted mostly the history of Jewish revolts in antiquity. Uh, you had like the Masada and the Maccabees and all of this stuff that happens. But after 1967, Jewish nationalism, Israeli nationalism, shifts to have a greater emphasis on religious themes, and it per becomes particularly obsessed with the Temple Mount, which they gained during the Six Days War. And uh, there's a the, the journalist I mentioned earlier, uh, Gershom Gorenberg, said, and this is I quoted this in my thesis because it was really important to my argument. He said, "Dig a centimeter beneath the debate over antiquities, and you hit a debate over whom the mount belongs to. A centimeter." Below that is the war over whom the entire country belongs to. So the Temple Mount becomes this schenectady. Am I synecdoche? Synecdoche. Thank you. The schenectady um, <laughs> <laughs> for the entire country and yeah. for the entire Holy Land and for the entirety of Judaism and for the entirety of Judeo-Christian civilization. Holy shit! And I do remember you telling me years ago that you know a, a lot of the the controversy over archaeology on the temple mount is like how far down do you go because if you you can just keep digging until you get to the answer that you want right but, you can just keep going and then you're like oh you hit a jewish uh, something that, that, that's like a like a, a like a jewish settlement and you're like boom okay we're gonna stop digging because if you keep digging you will then find you'll find the canaanites yeah you'll find the canaanites you'll yeah and you're like ah shit and like well or or you'll find another muslim some sort of like yep, or you'll muslim, find muslim. Uh, uh settlement and you're just like no you have to stop at the point in time that defends your argument and you know the dome of the rock on the what it's called for palestinians for arabs the haram sharif the it's dome a, of the, the rock big, the big is gold, a big gold huge gold dome yeah. dominates the city skyline of jerusalem yeah. and that has been a fucking bone in Israeli Zionist teeth since the seizure the of side. the old... Yeah. yeah. It, it is beautiful. It dominates the skyline, and it is a constant reminder that the Temple Mount does not belong to the Jews. And in fact, so there's a, a Palestinian authority set up a... It's called a waqf, 
WAQF, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but it's basically the Temple Mount Authority. Uh, it's under the protection of this Islamic waqf. So they control who enters the Temple Mount. They control what kind of construction projects get there. And it drives these Zionists crazy that they that they can't conduct archaeological exca- excavations there. Archaeology is a huge part of the controversy between like Israelis and Arabs generally. Archaeology on the Temple Mount is um you even have these temple denialists who are some Palestinian leaders who claim that a Jewish temple just straight up never existed in Jerusalem. We know that that's not true. We know that at least Herod's temple existed in Jerusalem. There are plenty of contemporary accounts of it at the time. Um and there's lots of archaeological evidence that it was there but but also jet fuel can't melt uh jewish temples <laughs> well i mean two <laughs> two centimeters of archaeology and suddenly there's a hot war so um yeah i mean i'm not that there isn't a hot war already Shit. yeah um, it is it is it is a hot conflict so so uh for for people who don't know myself sort of included the dome of the rock that's important to muslims in islam because that's where uh, muhammad ascended into heaven like he yeah, like the dome of the rock and the al-aqsa mosque are both the whole temple mount which they call the haram sharif it's holy to islam because it's where muhammad ascended to heaven on his horse and received uh his, his prophetic visions from god and this isn't mount sinai right this is a different mountain it's so that's a really interesting question. Um, Mount Sinai, Mount Moriah and Mount Zion are these like a series of landmarks that are could they shift all around their reference throughout the Old Testament, throughout a bunch of rabbinic texts, throughout a bunch of Jewish theology, and they move all around the place. So um, walking mountains. So most people think Mount Mount Sinai is somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula. Okay. So now there's Mount Zion, which is both has been variously referred to as a as a mountain that's to the east of Jerusalem or to, to the west of Jerusalem, but also the Temple Mount itself. So all these things they become essentially not geographical markers, but metaphors. Okay. That are just like imbued with so much meaning that, and in fact, I have this um. This list of things that have been associated with the Temple Mount to give you a sense of like how important it is. This I compiled this for my. What, what thesis, was but, the, uh, what was the mount that um, Abraham and Isaac? No, what was the mount that uh, Moses uh, received the commandments on? Mount Sinai. Sinai. Ah. So here is a list of things that are variously attributed to uh, taking place on the Temple Mount. It's the place where the waters of the deep were blocked off on the first day of creation. It is the source of the first light of creation. It is the first place in the world that was built when God separated the waters from the land. Thus, it is the center of the world. It is the place from which the dust was gathered to create Adam. It is the location of Adam's first sacrifice. It is the site of Adam's grave. It is the place where Cain and Abel offered sacrifice, and hence the location of Abel's murder. The flood was caused by lifting the temple's foundation stone and releasing the waters of the deep. The temple is the site where Noah first sacrificed after the flood. Wait, wait, wait. I thought this was 40 days of rain. 40 is used to variously refer to all kinds of different numbers. Oh, okay. Um, So it wasn't rain. It was like a temple, like they, they cracked a seal and... yeah. I don't wow. know. Guys, um, sorry, sorry. I didn't no, mean to okay. interrupt. This, this is all very intriguing and uh, surprising. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Abraham was circumcised at the temple place. Uh, 
blah, blah, blah. The temple was the site of the altar prepared for Isaac's sacrifice. Um, Jacob's Bethel version occurred at the vision occurred at the site of the future temple, blah, blah, blah. The foundation stone was the rock from which Moses drew water. And of course, uh, the, uh, God stood on the temple site to recall the plagues. So, you know, one or two important things happened at the Temple Mount. <laughs> wow. Um, and of course, it is obviously also the site of Solomon's temple and then Herod's temple. And so to give you a sense of like how long back these this very specific place has been causing tensions between Jewish people and uh, and Muslim people, the Mugrab or the Golden Gate, uh, also called the Eastern Gate, Christians believe that that is the gate Jesus walked through to enter the Temple Mount. Jews probably for the same reasons, believe it to be the place where the divine presence appeared and the gate through which the Messiah will enter once the temple is rebuilt. The Ottomans were so concerned about this that they sealed up the gate in the 16th century and put a cemetery there in the hopes that the Jewish Messiah would not cross a graveyard because graveyards are associated with being ritually unclean. Literally, 16th century Ottomans were like, this fucking Messiah shit is not happening put a cemetery right there that way we'll just keep this motherfucker out of the out of the temple compound and that should do it boys (laughs) Um, problem solved (laughs) there's another gate called the mugrabi gate or the moors gate uh, which was the only gate that the Waqf would allow non-muslims to enter the temple mount it was destroyed in heavy rain and snow a while back um, and the Waqf has not allowed it to be fully rebuilt and they also claim that any Israeli attempts to rebuild the ramp are uh, actually trying, they're actually attempts by Israel to destabilize the foundations of the mosques on the Temple Mount so that they can destroy them and rebuild the temple. So, uh, okay, so that, that answer is a question I had. So that the reason why they can't build the third temple is because the, uh, the Dome of the Rock is there. And, they... and it's under control of this Islamic waqf. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I mentioned this at the very beginning, but there are tons of organizations, including the Temple Institute and also the settler movements that are so often criticized for settling in um, uh, Gaza and the West Bank. And they're they're devoted to studying the Talmud and the priestly rites that took place in Solomon's Temple so that when it is rebuilt, they will be ready to go to start conducting worship there. Damn. It's pretty crazy that that uh, with all of these people who are like, you know, extreme devotees and zealots and fanatics uh for these uh competing um you know uh religious uh motivations that like there's some level of like continuity over the 20th century of Mm -hmm. of, like what has actually been on top of that mountain yeah it's pretty wild yeah yeah when was the dome of the rock built so the dome of the rock was initially completed in 691 ce it was destroyed during the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 CE, and uh, it was rebuilt in 1022. The Dome of the Rock is, in its core, one of the oldest extant works of Islamic architecture. Damn. Yeah. It's a very, you know, I've, I've always never been there because I've never left uh, the East Coast of the United States, but it is, a, inc- from pictures, it's an incredibly beautiful building. I actually built a replica of it when I was an um, archaeology student. Wow. It was pretty cool. So two years from now, it will be the thousandth birthday of the uh, uh, Dome of the Rock, and we'll know if that heifer is a. Uh, Whoa! Oh shit! <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's some geneticists. It's like 
Do you want a blemishless calf? I got you a blemish. Let crisper you a, a, a blemish. Tell you blemish-less what, you don't put a yoke on this thing. Three years, bada bing, bada boom, it's boom. ready to go. Done. So let's talk. Let's move on now. So we talked a little bit about modern Israeli Zionism. Let's move back to how this the Six Day War changed Christian Zionism. This comes from the Goldman book again. One way to secure a blessed future for America was to ensure that the United States continued to provide Israel with military aid. In the 1980s, Christian Zionists urged President Reagan and Congress not only to give Israel access to the latest technology, but also to deny that technology to its regional rivals. A second form of concrete support was tourism. American Christians had been making pilgrimages to Israel since its founding. Jerry Falwell pioneered a new kind of religious tourism, recruiting large groups to visit Israel on tightly scripted trips. So basically, these big groups of, you know, evangelical fundamentalist Christians would go to Israel. They would ignore pretty much the entirety of Jewish life, ignore the Arab population, and the itinerary was pretty much just sites of prophetic interest. But the Israeli government loved this shit, especially after uh, Begin took office in 1977. He was a he was a fierce nationalist, and he had no hesitation um, taking friends as he found them. And um, his government very much welcomed support of American Christians. When did uh, Birthright? 1999. Wow, really? Birthright was founded in 1999. I didn't know it was that that recent. I didn't know that either, actually. So millennial, millennials are the only people who have done birthright? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Or I guess Zoomers now. Could be Gen, Gen Xers, too. 99? Yeah, be, yeah, kind yeah, of age around be. 99. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And uh, Netanyahu, obviously, who's the ambassador to the UN for Israel, and then he later became prime minister, really intensely fostered these connections with American religious conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jerry Falwell in Listen America, which is a manifesto he wrote for the moral majority, said, if this nation wants her fields to remain white with grain, her scientific achievements to remain notable and her freedom to remain intact, America must continue to stand with Israel. Man, he, real, really big tell that he thinks grain is white. Like, wouldn't it make sense to be like brown with grain? It's amber, right? The yeah, song amber, literally amber says amber it. Gra- yeah. <laughs> um, well, it, it, the, the whiteness of the grain ties back to our shared Judeo-Christian, you know, f- fundamentals. It's true. Um, and he also once said, "I believe history supports the premise that God deals with nations as they deal with Israel." Again, going back to that. Wow. That covenant. <laughs> I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those yeah. who curse you. Televangelist Oral Roberts reported in his book, The Drama of the End Times, that Bibles had been stored in the caves of Petra by previous evangelicals so that Jews who survived the tribulations would seek refuge in those caves. There they would see how they had been deceived by the Antichrist and would accept Jesus as their Messiah. They would just see a big pile of like dusty just boxes books. of Bibles. Yeah, <laughs> they'd be like, "Oh, good. Yeah, I didn't want food or anything, but Bible, good." Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> glad I got a Bible here. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna. David, have you this. seen this book of Revelation? <laughs> my God, I can't believe it. Oh my God, it's all in here. Why haven't I read this before? <laughs> um. In 2000, all the Israelis are from. Like, they're the, all from Brooklyn. Yeah, they're all from, from the east side, from the lower east side. Yeah. Uh, um. So again, connecting back to the government, in 2002, Senator James Inhofe said, uh, in opposition to putting pressure on Israel to stop illegal settlements, he proposed that quote We ought to support Israel because it has a right to the land. This is the most important reason because God said so. 
He quoted Genesis 13, in which God promises Abraham that all the land he sees will belong to his descendants. Inhofe concluded, this is not a political battle at all. It is a contest over whether or not the word of God is true. According to John Hagee, pastor of the Cornerstone, Cornerstone Megachurch in San Antonio, the book of Genesis is nothing less than God's foreign policy statement. In 2006... <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that there is something foreign to God. Yeah. And that you must have a policy. Yeah. God damn. And on the seventh day, he rested. Because fuck those other guys. Like, we're, we're fucking invading their asses. Uh, in 2006, Hagee founded Christians United for Israel, which claims membership of more than a million. The 12 apostles were a coalition of the willing. so this brings us to the modern day and this is my last parting words for for everyone on december 6 2017 trump announced that the u.s would recognize jerusalem as the capital of israel and would move the embassy there most world leaders rejected the move the united nations security council held an emergency meeting on december 7th where 14 out of 15 members condemned trump's decision but the motion was vetoed by the United States. Palestinian officials said that this move would disqualify the U.S. from any future peace negotiations. The new embassy opened in May of 2018. Protesters on the Gaza border were tear-gassed and picked off by, by sniper fire, killing at least 58 Palestinians, the highest single-day death toll since the Israeli-Gaza conflict of 2014. The move had bipartisan support from Congress, including the Democratic minority leader Chuck Schumer, who called the move long overdue. Cool, dude. The U.S. delegation attending the embassy dedication ceremony included the Trump administration's officials Steve Mnuchin, Ivanka Trump, and Jared Kushner, as well as the evangelical pastors Robert Jeffries and John Hagee. Jesus. Maybe Jared's the Antichrist. Yo, have you seen that motherfucker though? Yeah. Like haunted baby looking ass. No yeah. lie. Fuck, oh yeah. 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 So that's it. That's uh, uh that's that's your world. That's wow. your world. All right. That's You're just living in it. That's the culmination of our special relationship with Israel. On the bright side, BDS and support for Palestinian liberation is becoming increasingly popular. Like I, if you watch the You're lobby, right. the Al Jazeera uh documentary, The Lobby, like these people are are they are losing ground they're running scared um, they are running scared and, and, and they they have every single thing you could possibly want like yeah. like like just they can buy whatever politician they want whatever uh like astroturf organization they they want to create they can do they can primary all, the most yeah. powerful members of congress they can do almost anything they want and it's not working it's not working. Yeah. And they, Support and they say for Israel is yeah. going down every single year. Yeah. And you know, because like they say it in like closed door meetings where they're like, we are losing and they're and all of the things that we've used in the past don't work. And one of the things that they've used a lot, you see this through all four episodes of the documentary is um, uh, conflating anti-Israel or like being against Israel as anti-Semitic. And they and at one it's point, just not persuasive anymore. Yeah, well, what's kind of <laughs> what's kind of incredible is like at one point they say calling someone anti-Semitic doesn't do what it used to do before. I think say something. Yeah, because you elected a fucking Nazi president. Yeah. who doesn't give a shit about anti-Semitic. Who, who you love? Yeah, 
It's 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 like so. It's all about Jerusalem, baby. That's yeah. why people people sit and wonder why he got the evangelical vote. Yeah, no. it's Israel. Yeah, that's why when he moved the capital, when he recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, every evangelical in this country creamed their fucking pants because that's yeah. all that they've wanted to happen. That's why they hated Obama. They fucking hated Obama because he opposed the illegal settlements and he said that he would not negotiate with Israel. That he would not come to the table with them until they stopped the illegal settlement settlements. Well, I stand with Ilan Omar in stating that it's actually all about the Benjamins. Hell yeah. That uh, was uh, super anti-Semitic. Yeah, and well, I yeah. can't believe we're going to have to cancel you. You're <laughs> off the pod now. You gave me just enough trope. <laughs> just enough trope to hang myself. No, but, uh, you know, Ilan Omar, uh, I remember it was such a bizarre thing, right? She was pointing out that the representatives of our country cannot do anything other than be blindly obedient to the state of Israel and otherwise face extreme censure. That was the the, the bulk of her argument. Right. And people uh, on Twitter or whatever, like, asked her, like, well, why do you think that is? And she said, you know, because APAC is very powerful and it's all about the Benjamins. It's all about the money that comes to these electoral campaigns from the Israeli lobby. Which is objectively true. Which is just true. objectively true. Yeah. Yes. And, and they get a lot of that money from evangelical Christians. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. And yeah. then the entire Democratic Party was like, that's not true. That's so not true that we're going to spend three days <laughs> censoring Same, you. Yeah. Same and, how not true that is. Yeah. And, and and ultimately like trying to pass legislation about how you've been very bad and you totally need to atone for saying the uh, very untrue uh, thing that was very evil and uh, associated with tropes. I remember um, Hillary Clinton's daughter, uh, Chelsea Clinton, just came out of the woodwork out yeah. of nowhere and yeah. was like, oh, you ain't shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm going back to my hedge fund life. But first, you know, go fuck yourself. Like, yeah, it's, I'm going to turn this into a teachable moment, Elon. <laughs> and it's, it's not even that, like, APAC supports, like, gives you a shit ton of money to run for Congress or to stay in Congress. Is that if you say anything bad about them, they then go find someone to run against you and give them a shit ton of money and do oppo research for them and do everything else possible to get you out. So it's not even just like carrot, it's also a shit ton of sticks. So well, many sticks you, that they bu- that they're bundled together they bundle into them. some sort of fashy that they then beat you <laughs> over the head with. Yeah. And if you watch and I highly recommend people interested in this topic watch the lobby, um but there are also like the reason it's called the lobby is because it's not just APAC. Like, there, and there have been books written about this subject where they refer to this amalgamation of all these different organizations, some more shadowy than others, that work in concert, often under the table, to do, for example, bundling, um, which is blatant. Like, they do it in a way that's blatantly illegal. They take a bunch of people. One person has, you know, a thousand dollars, and the other has five thousand, and so they take the money from the person with five thousand and give it to give just enough to the other guy, so that they come up to the twenty seven hundred dollar limit for campaign donations. And it's like right there on the invitation, where it's like you can give these amounts. Yeah. Right, and and, and these suggested donation amounts, so that. Like when once you get there, you can move it, move stuff around. You know, yeah, like and they pa- create blacklists you of like each other enough money to, send to yeah, make that happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's remember when Andrew Cuomo came out with his uh, anti uh, BDS speech and was like, "If you are boycotting Israel, 
New York boycotts you. <laughs> if Which you is good, are, good one. If you are divesting from Israel, New York State divests from you. And if you are sanctioning Israel, New York State sanctions you. <laughs> Essentially, why am I saying this? Because Israel is New York State. <laughs> Thumbs up. Check out my nipple ring. And that's the thing is that this is totally bipartisan. Yeah, but that is changing. Completely. And the like Israeli interests, Israeli interests are very terrified of the fact that young people are not enthralled to the project, the special relationship between the United States and Israel. Especially young Jews. Like young Especially Jews do not Jews. give a shit young about Jews Israel. Hate it. Yeah. And, you know, um, they're very concerned about what shape the Democratic Party. They're, they're afraid of losing that bipartisan support. And it's happening. Yeah. And as the younger generation continues to replace older people who grew up with this indoctrination that we did not fucking uh, swallow, it's going to be a different world. It makes me feel even a little bit uh, naively hopeful, I have to say. Well, I, I, I keep thinking about, like, the just the horrendous level of, like, fascistic like uh, rhetoric and and violence on the part of the Israeli state. And like, if they wanted, this seems like the worst PR uh, organization like ever in the modern age. Like they're just so bad at doing PR. Like if they wanted to have a, a situation where millennials or Zoomers or Gen Xers or whatever had uh, sympathy with the uh, Israeli cause, like why don't they just talk about what they anticipate as even an, a glimmer in the eye of the end of Israel and Palestinian conflict, Israeli and Palestinian conflict. Well, like, so they have done stuff where they talk about like Israel wants peace. They've like to put out these memos. This is also they have the talking lobby. points. Yeah, they have talking points about about that. I am, well, actually one thing that's really interesting though is I wrote this back in twenty fourteen or thirteen or something, uh, where um, it, Israel. Uh, was one of the first nations to put a shit ton of money into social media campaigns. And uh, and the IDF in particular, the Israeli Defense Force, has like, uh, just mountains and mountains of money, flaming mountains of money, that they put toward controlling the narrative on all sorts of social media. Mm -hmm. And the, like before journalists show up, this is also in the lobby where like, where people like journalists will be stationed in Jerusalem for like the whole Middle East region. And so like, as soon as they're going to like cover really anything in the region, any Isra kind of conflict. Yeah. Israel is already there to give like, to like with a package of like video, audio interviews, quotes that they can just directly give to CNN or whoever. And, and it's done. So like they, they do have they a get very, to, they get to control the narrative before yeah, any else. other journalist is even yeah. on the scene. So, so they do have a very, very sophisticated propaganda machine, but I think they're like what, what you said, Chris, like I think they're being like outmaneuvered by like the clear violations of, of human rights that they keep uh, perpetrating. Well, it's liberalism and anti-imperialism on campus. That's yeah. where this is happening. It's happening in colleges that are teaching, you know, anti-imperialism and the history of, of colonization and, you know, like in this one instance, the conservatives are right. These kids are getting indoctr indoctrinated in liberal arts programs on college campuses and they're making a big stink about it and they're drawing a lot of attention and they're showing videos and images of what's happening in Palestine and people are horrified by it, rightly. Well, so I, that definitely exists. I'm not trying to discount that. Um, but w w I went to like a STEM heavy college, right? And so I, my liberal arts uh, were like, 
writing poems, <laughs> like, <laughs> like in like one English class. Like other than that, I was like studying the physical world and everything. And so, um, you know, I was never touched by a Marxist professor, like in any meaningful way. Like he never touched you even a little bit. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Chris. but you know, like all of my uh, radical... my, my Marxist professor ass is just like Damn. okay, uh, all, just right. Touched him. all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Chris so has now, now so, been touched by a Marxist. Now professor. I've been touched by a Marxist. Wow, that felt that felt really good, right? Yeah, it's um, nice. It's nice. but but I became you know aware of all of this just from the internet mm-hmm. like and you know trying to understand how to be an adult in this world which really i only did after i graduated college because i had my nose so close to the stem grindstone mm-hmm. um and in the same way that like there's like insane flaming stacks of money that go into like propaganda the police are losing the pr battle with the younger generations yeah because you can't you can't ultimately, like, you know, put enough lipstick on that pig. Yeah. Um, and, and when it, it comes to, to Israel, like, just regular people on the internet are having conversations like, okay, so, like, what's Israel's endgame other than a very slow genocide? Right. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, like nothing else. Yeah. Like, like what are what? they trying to do? Like, like, you know, and then you have Jared Kushner come out with fucking Trump and shit and become, you know, the, the special boy to do the special thing in fucking <laughs> um, the Middle East. And he's, he's like, oh, smart. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to have a two state solution where Israel maintains uh, being a Jewish state and offers no rights for the state of Palestine. And that the state of Palestine is uh, these 40 odd ghettos that we have. Yeah, uh, this and, open air prison that we yeah, built for them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's that's their state. And as soon as they uh, start electing people who aren't terrorists, then you know this whole thing can sl- you know get moving. And, and it's like, what the fuck? What part the fuck? of the the rhetorical strategy there is also to, and Israel says, oh yeah, two state solution. We're open to that. Let's have some peace talks. Meanwhile, they allow illegal settlers yep. in those territories, which makes a two state solution absolutely impossible because you have already colonized the other state like you can't imagine imagine the maldives but instead of the ocean it's a hostile enemy territory that is constantly denying you electricity and building fucking walls and hitting you with f-18 hornets not letting your kids go to school like yeah just sniping you just not holding a flag yep just r- randomly, like, a highway that you use every day to go to work is just now, like, not yours anymore. Like, you're not allowed to use that road. Like, you're, like, yeah, it's absolutely and And, and so, it, it, the, when the contradictions of people's rhetoric uh, become so extreme with the material reality, which is for everyone to see, um, the PR doesn't mean anything. You yeah. could spend yeah. infinite amounts of money and you're never going to fucking win it. And um, I do think the increasing mediation of the world and the kind of, you know, Marshall McLuhan talks about how every new form of mediation extends the self further outside of it and into the world. That's the global village, right? Ah, um, that you are the idiot as, of. Yeah, yes, yeah. really yeah. yeah. So that we can now be in Palestine in a way that people couldn't be in the 70s and 80s because you can have people on the ground who aren't twisting the dominant narrative, who aren't, you know, bundling information for CNN. And we can now see what's happening in ways. I mean, it's the same. And there are tons of really good criticisms of this idea in media studies But I do think there's some merit to the fact that a similar thing is happening with police violence is that Mm -hmm. we're just bombarded with the images of it all the time. You can't ignore it. No amount of PR spin can get rid of those images. And also, when you look into our own history, 
it's extremely radicalizing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I th- I'm probably going to make another shout out in uh, the the regular episode, but please go listen to Robert Evans um, behind the bastards. This past month, he did a four part series with a hip hop artist named propaganda on the history of the police in the United States. And it is so fucking good. And it's so scary and crazy and interesting. And it's all from primary sources and um, from, uh, you know, the news like uh, of the times. And it is just absolutely insane to try and understand the idea of reforming what we have right now, which is essentially the state manifestation of a racial and class terror and protection racket. And that, like, <laughs> please just go listen to those episodes because they're they're so clarifying, and it's all just our history, and it's radicalizing as fuck. And like, when you really try to understand our own history, you understand that like everything that that we're told in our schools, and you know, like to, to respect and and give deference and authenticity to these uh, authorities, is bred out of uh, utility. And utility of the minority who own and control everything to own and continue to own and control everything. Uh, spoiler for, or it's not, maybe it's not a spoiler, but you know, if you're of Irish heritage, it's basically your uh, responsibility to hate the cops. It was like, you, you, oh, yeah, absolutely. You're like the first yeah. people to get like. Uh, well, but then they turned a bunch of fucking Boston Irish people into slave right, patrollers. Yeah, yeah. So, well, we, you because know, they know, we have a, we have they know a that the Irish fraught, should hate the cops more yeah, than anyone. You know, uh, gotta uh, get them early. We have a fraught relationship yeah. with the cops. As a member of the Hibernian diaspora, um, <laughs> I, I recognize the fact that the uh, police in this country have a historical role oppressing us and then allowing us to be oppressors. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's complicated. Uh, Like my grandfather was a cop. I think he may have been actually the chief of police in Worcester or great grandfather, I think was the chief of police uh, in Worcester. And then like my, my grandfather was a cop and I never met him because he died like well before my, my mother was uh, a parent, but it was one of those uh, types of things like, yeah, the Irish and the, the police have a tangled web. There's a very long history of ethnic minority groups in the United States becoming white by making these devil's bargains with the establishment. And it happened to the Jews as well. There's a book called How the Jews Became White that goes through like, um, and it happened to the Irish, it happened with the Italians, happened with the Germans. I'm sure in 20 years, it'll probably happen with now it's more complicated because now people look more ethnic than they did back then. But I'm sure it will probably happen with Latino people, with Latinx people. Black people are probably always going to be left out of that because they are so visually different, and there's well, just such a wh- long, whiteness long is designed in opposition. It, whiteness to is them. designed in so, op- yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our bonus. Thanks so much for coming along on this adventure with us. If you have any feedback for us, shoot us an email at ironweedspot at gmail Hope you liked it. And anything else, boys? Yeah, thank I'm, you, Brittany. Yeah, for, thank for, you. my pleasure. Yeah, it was Brittany a lot of fun. Did, uh, I was I was watching her do like a, and I was doing absolutely nothing. I was nothing. just like staring at her, like drinking a beer, like watching her do a bunch of work. Yeah, a ton of work for for this research. It was long, and it was all at my request. So like, you know, yep. I, I uh, finally got what I wanted, and I'm I'm done with this podcast scheme because <laughs> no, I got the fuck all you that are. I ever wanted from this. Yeah, uh, no, it's um. Thank you, and uh, and thanks for listening, and um, if, and thanks uh, so much for your support on Patreon. Yeah, We're so yeah. grateful to you guys. Yeah. We've picked up a bunch of new supporters lately. 
You're incredible. Really you're just you're the you're the most attractive people on the internet, so sexy. and we love you. Yeah. We love you so fucking much. And we could only really do this sort of really deep dive episode because now we have like patrons. A, yeah, a, a patrons. Yeah, we have a decent it's it's patrons, making yeah. a huge difference for me in terms of how much it's it's. E- e- it doesn't sound like a lot, but even, you know, every little bit helps free up some of my time yeah. and, you know, make me more flexible to be able to do this kind of content. So. Yeah. So, if you thought this was an illuminating episode, you know, definitely, you know, tell your friends. Yeah. Tell and, your friends. And, yeah. And reach your hand behind and your back and give right. yourself a nice little pat. Little maybe, pat. Yeah, maybe a massage. So yeah. A little shoulder rub from us to you through you. And, yes. he who, and he who blesses you will be blessed. With back rubs. With back rubs. Tenfold. <laughs> Tenfold. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, we love you. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye.